Welcome to another episode of Tell Me Another, a podcast dedicated to telling good stories from history, stories of genius and folly, compassion and cruelty. Instead of sitting around a campfire telling stories of our ancestors, we are coming to you from the History Department of the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. We are coming with stories to tell, and we hope you will listen. Joining us in the studio today are Professors Rick Ruth and Lee Pennington and Lieutenant Commander Andy Cox. We are recording in the U.S. Naval Academy Museum of Preble Hall and sitting at the very table that the Emperor of Japan gifted to Commodore Matthew Perry in 1854. Listen as our hosts take us through the fascinating history of the opening of Japan. The story of how modern Japan came to be is a long, fascinating saga. But in this series, we're concerned with just one part of that transition. How did Japan open up to the world? How, in the span of just a few decades, did it go from a globally secluded hinterland to one of the most connected, economically powerful, influential cultures on the planet? In no small part, this is the story of a single, remarkable individual— a man perhaps most responsible for the opening of Japan to the world. For most of its history, Japanese power and identity were fragmented across its isolated geography. Similar to feudal Europe, Japanese people identified themselves by their locality and their relationship to their local lords, the daimyo, who allied and fought with each other for power and dominance. The Tokugawa shogunate changed all of this in the early 1600s by unifying the country and ending one of the most turbulent destructive periods in Japanese history. By bringing their supreme military power to bear, the Tokugawa clan forced peace and order on Japan. Their leader, the shogun, did not replace the emperor. That person still resided in the traditional capital of Kyoto and, by precedent, legitimized the shogun's position and prestige by conferring vast political and military powers upon him. By carefully wielding imperial power and controlling access to the emperor, Shoguns solidified their roles as de facto rulers of Japan. I Naosuke was born in 1815 to a wealthy, renowned, and powerful noble family controlling Hikone in central Japan. His ancestors had been principal pillars supporting the Tokugawa shogunate. The I lineage had been entrusted with many highly prestigious duties, like guarding the imperial court in Kyoto, and designating their own home of Hikone Castle as temporary quarters for the emperor in times of peril. But Nausicaa was only one of the lord of Hikone's many children. His mother died when he was very young, and as the 14th son, without an adult to argue on his behalf, he had little chance of inheriting wealth, power, or position. Indeed, by family decree, Nausicaa was sent as a young adult to live in a small, modest estate he called Unmoregi no Ya, or the wooden fossil hut. For the next 15 years, he lived a rather simple life for one descended from such a noble, powerful family. He read and wrote classical Japanese literature and poetry. He studied military tactics and strategy and practiced iaido, the art of drawing a sword quickly. He devoted time to perfecting the chanoyu, Japan's traditional tea ceremony. Possessed of both a genuine interest in people and devotion to classic cultural Japanese touchstones, Nausicaa spoke to people from all walks of life, scholars, priests, commoners, and samurai. In a letter to a friend, he said, Human beings are all equals, 
having no distinction of high or low by nature. But class distinctions cannot be destroyed with safety. I love the tea ceremony because it precludes this humbug of social barriers between high and low. It emancipates, for the time being, the participants from troublesome conventionalities. Life seemed steady for Nauske, but dramatic changes were just over the horizon. By early 1846, many of his brothers had died, were adopted, or otherwise shifted out of the line of succession. When it became clear that the current lord of Hikone would have no heirs of his own, Nauske was summoned to Edo to attend the shogun. Nauske wrote to a friend, When we set out for the shogun's castle, I was attended by a large following of retainers and could not but wonder at this remarkable change of my situation. Upon his arrival, the shogun designated Nauska as heir to Hakone Castle. He stayed in Edo for the next five years, beginning an intense education in politics and court intrigue. Changes were in store for greater Japan as well. Though it was a country of over 30 million people with thriving internal commerce and an energetic urban scene, it was also suffering from chronic national debt, a listless and unsatisfied samurai warrior class, powerful daimyo chafing under restrictions, and an overall sense that the country was falling into moral and cultural decay. Critics and supporters of the Bakufu, the Tokugawa's administration, pushed for reforms, but these always ran into the same set of philosophical and cultural obstacles. Tokugawa ruling philosophy was a blend of Neo-Confucianism, Buddhism, and traditional Japanese values that esteemed social hierarchy, selfless service, and the veneration of the ancestors. The Japanese faced a tough dilemma. How could they remain loyal to their ancient ideas and practices when things were changing for the worse? Some politicians and scholars looked back at the early shogunate years as a golden era of peace and prosperity and right order, but conservative efforts to return to this mythical past, though attractive, would not solve debt problems or create virtuous leadership. The Bakufu could not muster the political solidarity nor will to institute needed reforms either. Japan was stuck with problems their system had created, yet could not agree on how to solve them or what changes, if any, were worth risking. Thanks, Andy. This is refreshing. Uh, for many people whose view of this historical episode is fixed upon Commodore Perry, uh, a perspective oriented from the deck of an American steamship, this is an enlightening view. I'm sure Japanese historians and historians of Japan start with something like this local perspective, but for most people, including the students we teach at the Naval Academy, this is a fresh look. Rick, it's important, I think, to look back at really the structure of this system that the Tokugawa clan has established. The Tokugawa, you could say, were the ultimate control freaks. They wanted to establish order after a period of warring states. Uh, they needed to contend with local personalities that were military powers, and they're doing everything they can to try to keep social order. The problem is they create a system that is well-articulated, but at the same time, fragile. They need to balance these warlords called daimyo against one another. And as a result, certain distinctions emerge that really are placing these daimyo in contention with one another. Trying to get a sense of the situation on the ground is really important for understanding the conflicts that are gonna emerge during this moment of transnational encounter but also to better understand what's going on with Nauske and other political figures of the day. 
it was the foreign question that pushed brewing domestic dissent into true political crisis and upheaval. Since the 17th century, the Tokugawa had instituted strict seclusion policies that expelled Europeans and their missionaries from Japan. Only a trickle of external trade through tightly controlled channels in Nagasaki allowed certain Chinese, Korean, and Dutch-traded Western goods into Japan. Many Japanese supported the exclusion of the West, especially anything to do with Christianity, which they considered a dangerous and corrupting influence on the Japanese spirit. For a long time, it seemed to work. But by the turn of the 19th century, foreigners again visited Japanese waters and islands, asking for trade agreements and diplomatic ties. The Russians encroached on northern islands and sent an envoy to the shogunate, but were rebuffed. In 1808, when a British ship pursued a Dutch merchantman into Nagasaki Harbor, the local Japanese daimyo committed ritual suicide, known as seppuku. He had come under enormous pressure and criticism for letting the foreign ships go without even firing a shot. Then, in the early 1840s, came shocking news. A British military expedition had humbled the Chinese Qing emperor and forced him to sign an unequal treaty, opening their country to trade. China's loss in the First Opium War unnerved the Japanese and heightened fears that Japan would be next. With the death of his brother in 1850, Nausuke became the new Lord of Hikone. His unexpected rise from obscurity to the head of such a powerful noble family placed him in the highest circles of feudal and national politics. Nausuke spent much of his time at the shogun's castle, observing and giving opinions on how to solve Japan's debt problems and handle foreign incursions. He was especially irritated by the conduct of shogunate officials. He was dismayed by their perfunctory approach to policy, their dithering, and their lack of vision. The need for strong, principled leadership was never more obvious. He wrote, How this foreign question will terminate, nobody knows. Our empire is now in a most critical condition, but I can see no one who seems to be awake to the seriousness of the situation. What a deplorable state of things. The world would not wait for the Bakufu to figure things out. In early June 1853, as Nausuke was visiting his ancestral home in Hikone, an urgent message arrived from the shogun. Strange black steamships had sailed into Uraga at the mouth of Edo Bay. Bypassing all protocol, the American Commodore Matthew Perry demanded an audience to deliver a letter from their president, Millard Fillmore. With Edo in an uproar, the shogun summoned Nausuke to return immediately. I cannot fault the Japanese for wanting to keep Westerners out. At this point, the British are burning Chinese cities using the East India Company's gunboats, uh, these, these frightful uh, vessels like the, the Nemesis that are capable of wrecking cities and killing populations from a great distance to force the Qing Chinese to accept uh, British opium. The British cannot fund their broad and, and complex imperial enterprise profitably unless they subsidize it with these opium sales. I can only imagine that this violence and the social cost of opium addiction would have reinforced the Japanese resolve to keep the Western imperialists and their navies as far away as possible. That's a great set of observations. I mean, the British are clearly making waves in the region. But what it seems to be, more so than the drugs, and perhaps even more so than the gunships, it's really the, the ideas coming from outside of Japan that are really causing a lot of worry at the higher echelons of Japan's government. For centuries, Japan had been keeping Portuguese and Dutch at bay, 
And finally, they worked out a situation in which Dutch merchants were restricted to the city of Nagasaki. There was Western interaction, but it was incredibly limited. And now here show up the Americans, brash, demanding with their expectations. The shogunate wanted them simply to act like the other foreigners had done by moving to the south. But Perry was not prepared to make the same concessions as the Dutch had done hundreds of years later. And this really bothered Japan's government. When we last left E. Nauske, he had recently jumped from the 14th son of a nobleman with no prospects to become Lord of Hikone. As a young man in his 30s, Nauske now had access to the highest circles of the shogunate and led one of the most powerful families as a Fudai Daimyo, a trusted Tokugawa family vassal. In July of 1853, he received a summons from the shogun to return to Edo. Foreigners had arrived in Japan. The city of Edo was in a near panic. When American naval officer Commodore Matthew Perry's four steamships had arrived, he went straight to Uraga at the mouth of Edo Bay, fired blank cannon shots, and ignored all attempts to get him to leave. Gruff and undiplomatic, Perry was determined not to be stuck dealing with middling functionaries. He declared he would stay put until he met someone of suitable rank and authority to deliver a letter President Millard Fillmore had written to the shogun requesting that Japan open trade and peaceful relations with the United States. American desires to open Japan had built up over decades from several different pressures. Prominent businessmen and politicians believed their long-term economic future included trade with the Western Pacific. Merchant captains and naval officers recognized the need for coaling stations in a strategic location like Japan. Others wanted to address Japanese mistreatment of shipwrecked U.S. sailors and whalers. Perry was willing to play the intimidating foreigner. He darkly suggested that refusing the president's terms could incite hostilities, and he expressed supreme confidence that his small naval force could obliterate any Japanese vessels if it came to war. After frantic attempts to stall, the shogunate decided to accept Fillmore's letter. Perry delivered it to an official in front of 5,000 Japanese troops and promised he would return with a larger force the next spring. Perry's black ships, as the Japanese called them, divided all levels of society over how to respond to the brazen foreign incursion. The outcry was quite justified as 19th century Western free trade ideology traveled upon impressive military and technological capabilities. Bakufu officials knew that Japanese defenses could not stand against the American steamships. With the memory of the First Opium War still relatively fresh, it was clear to many that these barbarians would not take no for an answer and might use any resistance as an excuse for conquest. The situation was even more critical because the current shogun was incapacitated with illness. Abe Masahiro, leader of the Roju, or senior counselors to the shogun, decided to take unprecedented action. He asked the daimyo, the feudal lords, for their opinion on how to respond to the Americans. His intent was to build a consensus around the shogunate's eventual decision. Though most daimyo only gave vague responses, two minority factions emerged. Some coalesced around E. Nauske, who believed the shogun must maintain an actively peaceful stance towards the Americans, 
even if it meant overturning the seclusion policy. In his own words, quote, in the face of a grave emergency which now confronts us, to cling to the ancestral laws of seclusion fare us ill. I rather think we should pursue a policy best calculated to maintain the peace of the world and integrity and welfare of the nation. This was a dangerous opinion even in normal times. Tokugawa Japan revered administrative precedent and ancestral guidance, and abandoning them risked being branded a traitor. Nausuke was devoted to classic Japanese culture and society, but he believed that extreme measures to preserve it might result in a very lopsided war. While other daimyo blustered about their determination to keep the foreigners out at any cost, he wrote, The courage of those who talk of war without any hope of victory, in my opinion, may only be likened to the boldness of boars and tigers. Their ferocity emanates from their dread rather from their true valor. Their views are not at all worthy of serious consideration. Although he was no fan of Westerners, Nauska regarded concessions as the lesser risk to a military showdown. Perry had revealed to him that isolation was impossible, and the Opium War showed that resistance would bring in subjugation. As he mentioned in a letter, when one is besieged in a castle, to raise the drawbridge is to imprison oneself and make it impossible to hold out indefinitely. Lacking modern warships and naval guns, Nauska advised a conciliatory course to avoid war until they had a reasonable chance of victory. Ending seclusion was embarrassing and potentially dangerous, but if allowing some Western trade and technology guaranteed their future, then that was the price of survival. He wrote, If we are to preserve the national honor, at the same time that we expel all fears of alien intrusion and secure the safety of our country, I have no doubt that it will accord with the will of the gods if the laws of our ancestors are remodeled. Other daimyo rejected opening the country at all and considered the American demands insulting. Anything less than maintaining the security of Japan, even if it meant war, would undermine trust in the shogunate. These daimyo gathered behind E. Nausuke's greatest rival, and perhaps the second most important character in the opening of Japan, Tokugawa Nariaki, the Lord of Mito. As his surname suggests, Nariaki was a Tokugawa relative, and his domain's close proximity to Edo gave him enormous influence. Although he had no official government role, his ambition, prestige, and public castigation of the dithering Bakufu rallied other lords to him. Can I ask about the moral grounds that the United States is implying or even citing in its argument that Japan must open up? Are the Japanese obligated to open their ports to foreign vessels because American steamships want coaling stations at strategic points in the Pacific? Do sovereign nations have the right to refuse such requests? I think somewhat better are the moral arguments underpinning the Americans' concern for the shipwrecked sailors, uh, the, the crews of those whaling vessels whose damaged ships get pushed into Japan because of storms and other mishaps. I'm sure that the Americans are sincere about safeguarding those crews and their valuable accumulations of whale oil, but it seems they're using the pretext of safeguarding these shipwrecked sailors to get their coaling stations. That's a great set of things to think about, Rick. I doubt that the Japanese government at the time really saw the issue in terms of morality. If anything, if the positions were either conservative or more progressive, the basic idea that animated all the parties was that it would be best if these foreigners simply left Japan alone. However, it became questionable whether or not that would work as an official stance. 
Nowske, for his part, he really needed to have a calculated response to the arrival of the Americans. And he warned in an eventual memorial to the shogunate that it seems clear through history that he who takes action is in a position to advance, while he who remains inactive must retreat. What's interesting about this point is that Nowske is going to advocate an opening of the country to the foreigners, but only to the point that Japan will be able to once again close its doors and return to seclusion. But that can only take place once the Tokugawa shogunate has modernized its military, possibly on Western terms, and then found itself in a position to enforce the seclusion that most people in Japan wanted the country to return to. Nariaki's opposition to dealing with the foreigners set him directly against Nausuke on the national stage. As the debate heated up their rivalry, Nausuke warned Nariaki, the condition of foreign states is not what it once was. If we persistently cling to our antiquated systems, heaven only knows what a mighty calamity may befall our empire. Nariaki was not convinced, and through the 1850s, the two men struggled for control of foreign policy and the fate of Japan. In early spring 1854, when Perry returned to Japan at the head of nine warships, it was clear whose proposal had won the shogunate's backing. In the Treaty of Amity of 1854, the shogunate accepted most of Perry's terms. Japan opened a couple of ports to U.S. merchants, granted access to food and fuel for U.S. ships, improved the treatment of castaways, and established a U.S. consulate in Shimoda. Though Perry had not fully opened trade relations, he had forced the Japanese to end their policy of seclusion, which was a monumental change. Other Western powers quickly followed suit with similar treaties. The rivalry between Nausicaa and Nariaki now shifted targets to the future shogun. Because the current shogun was childless and in declining health, the two men disagreed over who should be appointed his heir and successor. One candidate was Tokugawa Yoshitomi, a 12-year-old boy who was the closest blood relative to the dying shogun. The other option was Hitotsubashi Yoshinobu, an adult of reputable intellect and managerial skills, but more distant blood ties. Since he was also Nariaki's seventh son, if he were chosen, Nariaki would wield enormous influence over shogunate policy and the foreign question. Nausicaa and his supporters would not stand for this and lined up behind the young Yoshitomi. It is not unfair to speculate how much they expected to influence the next shogun if he was a pliable young boy, as opposed to a full-grown adult from a powerful rival's family. Regardless, the question of who would succeed the dying shogun divided Japan into fierce factions and kicked off a major political crisis. The world, again, showed it would not wait on Japanese squabbling. In September 1856, as the French and British pummeled China in the Second Opium War, Townsend Harris arrived as the first U.S. consul to Japan. As his top priority was achieving a comprehensive trade treaty, he steadfastly refused the many numerous Japanese counterproposals, writing in his journal that these were, quote, disgraceful to all parties and not worth the paper on which they were written. While he ground through many months of frustrating work with Bakufu officials, Harris held an ace in his hand. Time was on his side. 
As the Second Opium War dragged on, Harris pressed the Japanese to sign with the Americans while they still had a choice in the matter. He repeatedly warned them that once the Europeans were finished with China, Japan would be next. At any moment, the British could send a fleet and drive an even harder bargain at gunpoint. Harris claimed that Japan's first comprehensive trade treaty with the Americans would become the model for all others that followed. Since they had no way of resisting the Europeans, the shogunate's best choice was to sign with the Americans, who would be less exacting, though not by much. Nauske regarded this as a reasonable case, no matter how distasteful, but other powerful daimyo like Nariaki vehemently disagreed. So the arguing continued while the calendar marched on. In the midst of such factional strife, how could Japan manage to defend its independence? Nauske felt it was time for direct action. On June 4, 1858, with the strong backing of the other high shogunate counselors, he assumed the office of Tairo, or senior counselor. This was an exceptionally powerful executive position filled only in times of national emergency. The E lineage was only one of a handful of trusted families who could become Tairo by hereditary right, and though it's unclear whether Nausuke was formally nominated or arranged his ascension himself, he became the chief executive of Japan's entire government. With both hands now firmly on the wheel, he would show the shogunate's strength and resolve to its foreign enemies and domestic challengers. Realistically, what could the Japanese leaders have done? I mean, Japan's a mountainous archipelago in which much of the population lives on narrow strips of land concentrated largely in coastal plains perhaps even more so than the Chinese of the Yangtze River Valley or of the southern coast, the Japanese are vulnerable to Western imperial gunboats, no? Certainly an unprecedented threat like this, the arrival of the Americans and potentially other foreigners after them, was really challenging the central authority of Japan. We see the shogunate trying to work through the situation either with or without the opinions of the daimyo, and so in a practical sense, the government is trying to cope with being stuck between a rock and a hard place. The key though, and this is a change that's taking place in Japan, is that whatever solution is presented, it must be one that has the will of the emperor behind it. There's an emerging movement in Japan shared among daimyo and samurai in which so-called revering the emperor is the most important political stance a person should take. And what we see are these shogunate officials trying to respect the emperor, but also make decisions that might, come to think of it, contradict the imperial will. And Nausuke, he's on the verge of having to make one of these decisions, revere the emperor or not, and the situation's not going to turn out too well for Nausuke in the end. Nausuke took his first fateful step on July 31st, 1858, and signed the treaty with the Americans without the emperor's consent. With the stroke of a pen, Japan established formal trade relations with the United States, opened more ports to foreigners, 
and allowed American officials to live and travel in-country. The very next day, Nowskin moved to shore up his political flanks from the storm he knew was coming. He summoned the daimyo to the shogun's court and told them about the treaty. He sent a letter to Yoshitomi, the shogun's young cousin, informing him that he would be appointed heir. And he began forcing out shogunate officials whom he suspected of disloyalty, replacing them with his own trusted supporters. The xenophobes responded immediately. On August 3rd, Nariaki arrived unannounced to the shogun's castle with several of his closest daimyo allies and declared he would not leave until he'd compelled Nausuke to commit harakiri for his outrageous conduct. Bullying his way through lower ministers, Nariaki came face to face with the Tairo. In an escalating confrontation, he tried to shame Nausuke for concluding the treaty without the emperor's approval, but Nausuke remained serenely confident, simply noting that Japan was out of time. At that very moment, a British naval squadron was en route to Japan from Hong Kong. Nariaki's allies demanded that Hito Tsubashi be named the shogun's heir, implying this would secure the emperor's post-facto favor for the Harris Treaty. But Nausuke was adamant that the shogun had already selected his young cousin to succeed him. Frustrated and outmaneuvered, Nariaki and his supporters left. Nausuke had stared them down, and now, ascendant, he moved quickly to cement his success. He convinced the dying shogun to put Nariaki and his supporters under house arrest for trespassing into the castle. When the shogun finally passed, his successor was a pliable 12-year-old boy. Nausuke signed similar commercial treaties over the next few months with the British, the Dutch, the Russians, and the French. The ministry was full of loyal officials, and his greatest rival had been eliminated. Things were looking up, right? In fact, the summer and fall of 1858 witnessed some truly chaotic times. The shogun's death and a cholera outbreak rocked Japanese society. A terrible fire ravaged Kyoto and damaged the imperial residence. Months of bad weather and floods ruined the harvest, leading to skyrocketing food prices and riots. The appearance of the Donati Comet caused widespread distress. Many people asked, what was the meaning of all these events? What were the heavens trying to say? Were these signs of worse things to come? In the meantime, the emperor was furious with Nausuke over the treaty. He sent a letter directly to Nariaki voicing his frustration at the Tyro's capitulation to the Americans and called for Nausuke's expulsion from office. Nausuke could not let this stand, and his efforts to confiscate the letter and snuff out opposition resulted in the Anse Purge, or Great Persecution. It ran for almost two years, and many of the victims were anti-foreign agitators from the samurai class and imperial advisors. Seven were executed, others were exiled, and about 70 were imprisoned or put under house arrest. The crackdown produced an inevitable backlash, especially among samurai agitators who'd already held grudges against the shogunate and were enraged over the Anse Purge. They gave Nausuke the name I no Akaone, or the Red Ogre of E. As opposition against Nausuke peaked, the environment became ripe for radical action. It sounds like Nausuke, even in laying the foundation for uneven treaties with the Americans first and the other Western imperial powers afterward, is trying to strike the best deal in a bad situation, both in terms of domestic politics and geopolitical circumstances. Rick, he's trying to reach 
the best accord possible for Japan. Again, open, at least temporarily, and hopefully step a little bit back into seclusion. The thing is, these onsay treaties set Japan up for unequal treatment by the Western powers. And so, as historians, we have to ask, was Nausuke's circumvention of this imperial sanction by signing the Harris Treaty good or bad politics? And I think the answer is, it depends. Interacting with the West brought both bad and good consequences. Japan experienced an era of accommodation of foreign wishes, but it managed to temper those demands. Interactions between the shogunate and the imperial court definitely took a turn for the worse, but also it encouraged the two parties to try to seek common ground. But for Naosuke himself, well, he's going to suffer the consequences of his decision. One of the things I noticed from this story on the side of the agitators is that every time Nauske makes a move, it's to either undercut his rivals or consolidate his position and power. And whether or not he means it to be that way, it definitely contributes to the conspiratorial or adversarial view that he's doing this for himself. It seems to many actors in Japan, samurai who are paying attention to politics, that Nauske is being short-sighted and self-centered. But looking at his writings, looking at his role as the Taido, as the senior counselor, he's really trying to make pragmatic decisions, but the ground is changing underneath his feet. The tectonics are shifting in Japan, and he's trying to adapt as best he can, but how can you do that and make everybody happy? Speaking of unhappy people, on the morning of March 24th, 1860, Nauske traveled by palanquin from his mansion to Edo Castle with his guards. An unseasonable snowfall slowed his bearer's progress and reduced visibility. As the party neared the Sakura Damon gate of the castle, a group of 18 samurai dressed in reddish-brown cloaks approached. One of them drew a revolver, pointed it at the palanquin, and opened fire. The others drew their swords and attacked. By the time the guards managed to drive them off, Nauske had been dragged from his palanquin, stabbed, and decapitated. His body lay in the snow with several of his guards and some of the assassins. The conspirators were mostly ronin samurai from Mito. They had renounced their domain loyalty just before the killing in order to prevent staining Nariaki's reputation. They carried a manifesto that declared, quote, it is entirely against the interests of the country and a stain on the national honor to open up commercial relations with foreigners, to admit foreigners into the castle, to conclude treaties with them, to allow foreigners to build places of worship for the evil religion, and to allow the three foreign ministers to reside in the land. Therefore, we have consecrated ourselves to be the instruments of heaven to punish this wicked man, and we have taken it on ourselves the duty of ending a serious evil by killing this atrocious autocrat. Nauske was buried at his family's ancestral temple in Edo. In a twisted bit of irony, the firearm used to shoot him was a Japanese-made Colt 1851 revolver. It had been copied from one of the gifts Matthew Perry had brought to Japan years before. Nariaki did not have long to gloat, though, because he died of a heart attack only six months after Nauske's assassination. His son... Hitotsubashi, however, 
did become the last shogun of Japan in the end. For nearly a century, Naosuke was remembered in Japan as a tyrant and discredited lord. Within recent decades, historical scholarship has reevaluated his role and motives in opening Japan, and his descendants reconciled their tensions. In 1968, a hundred years after the fall of the Tokugawa shogunate, the cities of Mito and Hikone formally became sister cities. It's a fitting denouement to their lord's rivalry and speaks to the unity that Japan eventually obtained after coming out of centuries of seclusion. Caught between the threats of Western imperialists and Japanese ultranationalists, Nasuke seems like a tragic example of what happens to historical figures uh, who get trapped in no-win situations. It's unfortunate but not surprising that Japan's militarist-dominated nationalist discourse regarded Nasuke so negatively. Uh, nationalist history like those written by Japan's chauvinists in the first half of the 20th century denigrate and vilify leaders who are practical and sensible, but I guess I'm glad to see that Nasuke is remembered better now for his diplomatic farsightedness and for his service to Japan's interests. Depending on who's doing the assessment, the assassins of Nasuke are either heroes or villains. For some, they are helping to pay back against someone who has betrayed the country. For others, they're actually proving that loyalty to the emperor is, and perhaps should be, the most important thing in Japanese politics. Even so, I think it's really important to remember what the assassination of Nasuke was and what it was not. It was an act of vengeance taken against Nausuke, but it's not an attack against the shogunate, at least not from the perspective of the assassins. In their manifesto, they express their conviction that our conduct does not indicate the slightest enmity to the government of the shogun. Now, it's easy for actors to say that their actions were not something, but here's a key point. They reserved their violent indignation for targeting an individual whose worst behavior, from their perspective, was ignoring the imperial will. And this, as a consequence, degraded that relationship between the shogunate and the imperial court. And their manifesto, it rattles out this long list of grievances against Nausuke, but it's only passing mention of the errors of the shogunate. It's an orchestrated hit, all right, but it's a strike against improper behavior rather than an attack against seemingly irredeemably corrupt governance. Nowski's assassination, the immediate aftermath, leads to a conservative backlash that leads to eventually a civil war and the fall of the shogunate, but that takes about a decade to get through. When I researched this story, I was very interested in the person perhaps across the table from the Americans in the opening of Japan. And I knew this played into the eventual Meiji Restoration. But Nausuke's story comes to a very abrupt end. And we, like you said, we haven't got to the conservatives attacking the shogunate yet. How do you think we should consider Nausuke's story in the greater political revolution that we know is coming? Nausuke is an interesting figure. And we see through his assassination the end of his story but this really is the beginning of the story of modern Japan. Because what we see in the actions of Nausuke and Nariaki and even the assassins is there's this emerging concept of Japan as a new type of entity 
something that integrates emperor and government, samurai and daimyo, all levels of society, all interest, into a new community, a community that's setting itself up in opposition to a wider world, while at the same time trying to become that world. And so Nausuke, he sits at both the beginning and end of time in Japan. Do you think it might be fair to say that Nausuke's and Narayaki's deaths represent, in a way, a closing of old Japan? Certainly a hinge moment. The door is closing. It takes some time, but Nausuke helped to oil that hinge. This has been a production of the History Department at the U.S. Naval Academy, located in Annapolis, Maryland. If you enjoy our programs, please let us know as we'd love to hear your thoughts. You can reach us on Twitter and Instagram at USNA History, and our email is historyproductions-group at usna.edu. For more information about the History Department at the Naval Academy, please visit usna.edu history.